Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 16 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. As always, thanks to all of you who continue to listen and share the show. Even though I encourage my listeners to use one of the next wave of podcast apps, my preferred app being the Fountain Podcast app, it would still mean a lot to me if you would take a moment to visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify to leave me a five-star rating and a review there. Those are currently still the most popular podcast platforms, and leaving me a review there will help boost the ratings and help others find the show. And I would be eternally grateful if you would visit thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support and show me some love there as well. Today we welcome Will Spencer to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Will is an entrepreneur, traveler, and storyteller. His path has taken him from Stanford University to the dot-com boom, to the warehouse rave scene of San Francisco, and through 33 countries on six continents, before returning home to Jesus Christ. Along the way, his passion for growth led him into the exciting world of men's personal development and transformation, which he calls the Renaissance of Men. Today, he hosts a podcast by the same name, and works with men one-on-one and in groups to help create their own personal renaissance. Will, thank you for joining us. I'm grateful to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, Will, I stumbled upon your content uh, because I was actually looking for my own podcast in another podcast feed and didn't find it there. But when I searched the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, I saw something that said Renaissance of Men, the Psychedelic Christian. Mm. And you had interviewed one of my uh, new acquaintances, Paul Reese. And uh, so I got in touch with you guys, and I've really been enjoying both of your work. So I appreciate you joining me here today to discuss your life and uh, what you do. That's uh, that's actually, that's really cool because Paul's amazing. And um I remember when I first connected with him and we started sharing stories and I read his book and it's, it's such an important set of topics because um, as I'm sure you know, there's an enormous wave of people transitioning out of the new age and into Christianity. I'm one of them. Paul's another one. And we bring with us a specific set of experiences and sometimes making that full transition from deep into the new age, like consuming substances and letting all that go and then going fully into the Christian world and then being able to speak openly about it. It's hard to find people that have, that have really let that, let that go. Cause it's difficult, difficult to let go of. So when Paul and I met, we just had a lot to talk about. And so when you reached out to me, it's like, Oh wow, more people are thinking about this. This is, this is really cool. So I'm, I'm grateful to have made Paul's acquaintance and your acquaintance that you've made Paul's acquaintance as well. It's just a, it's a, it's a really fortuitous providential set of meetings. Providence for sure. Yeah, I, uh, you know, most most people, their experiences with psychedelics and other substances are so connected with history that they would probably prefer to, you know, distance themselves from, you know, negative, yeah. 
things they view through a negative lens in their past. And when they come to faith, sometimes you don't, you know, you begin to want to reestablish establish a new reputation, you know, within the context of the Christian lifestyle. And you, you don't really want to make some of those things in your past that are connected to dark times. You don't want to bring those in into your new relationships and new, mm. you know, your new reputation. And um, sometimes it can be difficult or challenging for people to talk about their past with substances because of that negative bias. So it's, it's completely understandable, but I think people are starting to recognize whether you view those things as uh, unproductive or sinful or whether you view them as complementary, I think people are, are, are willing to discuss it now. And I think that's a healthy thing for us to do as Christians. I agree. I mean, it's one thing to have to look back at my past and know that I did things that were involved in darkness, but that I didn't know were involved in darkness, right? But I didn't do anything immoral. Like I look back on on my participation and I was in the the DJ rave scene in San Francisco. So of course that was a big part of what I was doing. It was in the new age. I never did anything that I would look back on and say that was objectively immoral. I didn't violate my conscience. I was behaving contrary to rules that I, I guess I would say I, I didn't really know existed, at least not in the way that I know now. But that's not exactly the same thing as looking back and feeling ashamed about anything that I did because I did it all with integrity. Now I was wrong. But when you do something wrong but you're, and you're doing it with integrity, it's easier to forgive yourself because it's like, look, I just didn't know it was wrong. Like, obviously, if I had known then what I know now, right? But I never look back and say like, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I'll do it anyway. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. So it makes it easier for me to integrate all these things that I did. And, you know, because it wasn't just psychedelics. I've been to Burning Man and I've, I've been to, you know, sacred sacred religious sites around the world and done all kinds of, you know, various new age practices like past life regression and breath work and, you know, all these different things. And so for me, it was, um, it was a, I guess you could say it was a bit like a research project. I, I didn't really know that that's what I was doing, but I was trying to find an answer that I really wanted. And I always made sure to keep my mind very clear. I was paying attention. I was alert. I was aware. I never like drank the Kool-Aid and became like about it. You know, like I didn't, I never started wearing crystals around my neck or wore natural fibers. I mean, I understood the value of natural fibers, obviously. Right. But I never became like about that life. It was always for a purpose. So I can look back on that now and say, um, I got what I needed to out of it because it (laughs) led me to a much better place. I made all the mistakes in the book so that I can tell other people don't make those mistakes. Right. And I think most people, even if they do, you know, go through a phase of wearing linen and beaded jewelry and crystals, you know, there's people aren't usually intentionally cultivating darkness in their life or in the world. You know, they're just right. They're trying to find their path. And that that that's something that resonated with them. And so they're going down that road. Well, well, why don't you please begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about your early life. You know, what, how did you start out in the world and what kind of spiritual influences maybe did you have in your family and, and what kind mm-hmm. of trajectory did that set you on? Well, I was, um, you may be surprised to know that I was, uh, my family's Jewish. Uh, my, all four of my grandparents are Jewish. So both my parents are, and I was bar mitzvah at age 13. And that was how I was, that was how I was raised. Now, we weren't raised religious. Judaism for a lot of families, like including my own, is, is a secular religion. We do the religious things because we do the religious things, not because we actually believe um, or, or we, we talk about them being tied to any kind of higher reality. They're cultural. 
Um, but I remember when I was bar mitzvahed, my Torah portion, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, the portion of the Bible that the, the pastor uses to deliver the message for the week. It's the Torah portion with the, what the bar mitzvah uh, gets for that. My Torah portion was the 10 commandments and Torah portions. You don't get to choose them. They're like assigned, they're assigned to you. So it's like, you know, if you're going to get a section of the old Testament to, to read and interpret, like old Testament's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's up there, right? I'm sorry. The, the 10 commandments is pretty good. And I remember um, talking to the rabbi as he was, as he was working through it with me. And I remember him saying, I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but it was something along the lines of the, the 10 commandments have structure to them. And what I remember him saying, but I don't think this is what he actually said was that the, the second five commandments are there to make sure that you don't violate the first five. Like if you do, if you break the, 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 the second five, you'll be more likely to break the first five, something like that. And when I heard that, I remember sitting in his office and I was like 12 years old. When I heard that, I thought that was really cool because I knew what the 10 commandments were at that point. Cause I'd been to Sunday school and stuff like that. But to understand that these laws weren't just like 10 laws that were written down that were self-evident there was structure to them there was thought put into them and i remember that was probably the first time i would ever have had what i might call like a spiritual thought right I was 12 mm-hmm. years old so so i was bar mitzvah and then i went to um and then i went to a jesuit high school uh catholic school because it was the best it was the best school in town because you know, I wanted to get into a great college, and so growing up, you know, in a sort of secular Jewish kind of kind of household, like we didn't celebrate Christmas, but we celebrated Passover and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you know, that and Hanukkah as well. Like we never had a Christmas tree or anything like that. We we might have done a Christmas thing once, and then transitioning into um, in high school, going into a Catholic high school, it really forced me to kind of recon- reconcile these notions of there's more than one way to view the religious world and i can't be walking around inside this catholic school being like i'm right and you guys are wrong because what do i know you know what i mean like it would be really easy for um for a kid to come in and be like well i don't believe any of this nonsense my religion is the right one it's like well i didn't want to carry myself that way because i'm not that way and so i had to really come face to face with the note this notion that there are different perspectives on religion in the world at a very young age like when i was what 14. And I think that that probably, and this is the first time I've ever actually articulated this before. I think that that encounter with differences of religion was might might have been what really sparked the question for me. Well, if there are all these different religions and perspectives in the world, how do I actually reconcile that? Because they're both making some claim to ultimate reality, and they can't all be right, or are they all right? And so that was the first time that I, I guess I would say that I encountered that question not consciously, but I guess in the sense that I had to kind of live it. So I guess that's probably what some of what contributed to setting me on the path that it did. Hmm. So did, I mean, I guess you had to attend, you know, masses and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Did, Bible, there was a, there was a hermeneutics and exegesis class as well that I took my sophomore year. And I, I was given like the book of Isaiah, which is pretty cool. So were you, were you receptive to that Christian message or were you just being like, I'm going to be open-minded and nice to everybody and not be, you know, argumentative or were you kind of still like kind of stuck to your Jewish guns, you know, like, like uh, <laughs> how did, how did you weigh all that? And, you know, as a kid, it was yeah. probably not very cut and dry. You were probably just kind of like rolling with the punches, I guess. But Well, I think the one thing, the one thing that I knew 
was that I, I was very open and it was very clear that, okay, here are priests and here are Catholic students. It was a boys' school as well. This is clearly very important. I mean, I'm, I'm putting myself back in my own like 14, 15 year old shoes. So these weren't thoughts that I was consciously having at the time, but I can articulate the way that it felt. Mm-hmm. It was like, here's, it's obviously very important to these people. I'm taking classes in, in, in Christianity, but I remember that um, one of the, I guess you might say, one of the rules of, of being Jewish is that you can't ever become Christian. Like don't ever, don't ever go, don't ever go messing with that or uh, messing with that's not the right word. Just don't even, it's like, it's ridiculous. It's silly. Don't even think about it. And so I guess it, it, it wasn't, I, I was open-minded, but I knew that I had to have a wall inside myself and I could, I was not allowed to ever fully consider it. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But I never judged anyone for having those beliefs. I don't recall if I ever had any religious arguments because I didn't really feel like in a, I was in a place to, because I'm, for all I know, one of the, the one or maybe only two Jewish kids, Jewish boys in the entire high school, who am I going to argue with? And to what extent do I understand my faith enough to argue? And to what extent do I understand their faith enough to really speak to them about it? So I guess I would say that I just navigated a bit like, I would say like a turtle underwater, you know, like a can swim around underwater, but needs to breathe Mm -hmm. air. It's kind of a bit like that. So it doesn't reject the water, but it's just kind of there. And it was like, okay, cool. No big deal. And I went to, I went to um, retreats. There were boys retreats. I think it was, I think I started my sophomore year. I think I went sophomore, junior and senior year called Kairos retreats um, because the high school had a retreat center up in the, up in the woods. And so a big group of boys, like 20, 30 boys, something like that would go and we'd sing songs and have small group meetings and stuff like that. And I participated in those. And I really enjoyed those because it was a chance to get to talk about bigger ideas and an experience like people who had really a devout faith. And it was, it felt like a real privilege to be around that. And to get to learn from the priests who shared their experiences. And I remember I came back from one of them and all the boys who would go on these Kairos retreats, they would, um, there was like a welcoming home ceremony for the parents. So it was in this kind of, it was in the library. And so they'd lay out and put out all the chairs and the parents would come in. And they had the boys, some of the boys who wanted to speak on the microphone. And I think someone asked me, um, well, Will, what's it like being a, a Jewish student on a Catholic on a Catholic retreat. And I remember I said, um, on the microphone, I said, well, there's, there's only one God. How many more do you need? <laughs> right. So I thought that was, that was probably what I might call my second, <laughs> my second spiritual thought. Awesome. Well, where did that take you? You know, once you, you left high school and pursued either career or higher education, what, um, how did your life evolve and particularly how did that, you know, spiritual influence shape your future or not? Oh yeah. Well, from there I went to, uh, I went to the Bay area, went to Stanford university, to go to school, to go to college. And of course it's in Northern California. And so Northern California has all different kinds of spiritual influences. You might say this was in 1996. And what, one of the odd things that was happening then was that everyone who was a freshman immediately started segregating, segregating themselves into their, what we might call today as oppression groups. Like all the black students started going to the black kids and all the Asian students. And so it was like everyone, everyone started you know, self-identifying in this way, mm-hmm. perhaps to belong, but who knows. 
but there was definitely that that energy. So I joined the Jewish Students Association. I became the social chair of the Jewish Students Association. But I also had this interest in um, in world religions, and I remember I took a class on on Taoism as well. And um, then a couple years later, uh, I left school. I stopped out. I didn't drop out. I stopped out to do a dot com startup because that's what everyone was doing that back, back then. It was nineteen ninety nine. And while I was doing the startup, my sister took me to um, a rave here in Phoenix, um, where I live, and this was on New Year's Eve, Y two K, you know, year two thousand. <clears> the the rave was called Afterlife, and I took an ecstasy pill, and that was my first experience. I don't. It wasn't my first experience doing drugs. That's not true. I had smoked. I had smoked weed in college, and it was miserable. It was miserable. If we want to get to talk to, about the influences of psychedelics in my life, like. The influences of the bad trips I've been on has been like people don't talk about bad trips enough. Um, but it was just I, like I, I hear I hear there are no bad trips. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not a it's not a it's, it's just a learning experience, bro. <laughs> God, just being in, in the most intense psychic pain for about eight hours is just really terrible. So, um, but that was my introduction to the the DJ world and the rave scene, which of course it, it admits. Uh, at that time, especially admitted all kinds of pagan influences, world religious influences, new age influences. So that that Y2K year 2000 was a big shift for me to go into this whole new world of the new age and, and psychedelics. So that would be kind of like, um, I guess, probably fair to say a left, <clears throat> left turn. That was a left turn for me as I made that shift. Hmm. What kind of uh, what kind of career were you pursuing during that time? At the time, um, I was doing my startup and I was the, um, I was the, I was a board member and I was the director of marketing. So I was responsible for doing a lot of the fundraising, a lot of the legal stuff with the legal team. Um, I gave a impromptu elevator pitch at a conference. It was called the bootcamp for startups, Guy Kawasaki, who was one of the, uh, one of the early guys at Apple. He was doing a conference for startups. You know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the people who really made money from the gold rush weren't the men who came out to mine the gold, but the, the people who were selling them like blue jeans and stuff right. like that. Shovels and picks and yeah, buckets. <laughs> Levi's jeans, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So the boot camp for startups was like, we're not actually going to do a startup, but let's do a conference and just get paid massive money from the people who do. Well, there was a, an elevator pitch contest and I went up on stage for the elevator pitch contest and I gave a 30 second elevator pitch. And it was everyone was being graded. I gave a 30 second elevator pitch and the panel of like four or five judges all gave me thumbs up and the crowd went wild and everyone was cheering and stuff. And uh, and then that was how we got venture capital interest and angel angel interest. And it really like set us this off on this rocket ship kind of adventure as a result of that. Um, it was written up in Inc. Magazine, actually, which was pretty cool. Um, so I was doing the director. I was the director of marketing for startup. There was plenty of money to buy records and, you know, turntables and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, tech culture is very hardworking during the week and very permissive on the weekends in some ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm like a 21, 22 year old kid with um, with a good a bit of a good bit of money and, you know, this whole new world to go exploring through of you know, creativity and arts and sort of this outsider world that I can find acceptance in. And, and so it was a, it was a pretty potent, pretty potent mix for me to go diving into this, uh, this world that introduced me to a whole lot of other things. Yeah. I guess just to get a, an idea of what life was like in that rave scene, 
could you share to the best of your memory, like maybe some, some moments that were impactful or that made an impression on you either for better or worse? I'm sure there were probably a little bit of both in that regard. And if there were, you know, substances involved, how people in that scene use those kind of substances, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm pretty much right about your age, but I grew up in Southern Arkansas. So it wasn't like there was a rave scene <laughs> right. going on when I got out of high school. So, you know, it's hard for some of us to really understand like what that world's like. Mm -hmm. Well, so the rave scene has to have the, the DJ dance and DJ scene has two halves to it. There's the nightclub world and then there's the, the rave world. So the nightclub world takes place in urban areas for the most part, like in the big nightclubs, lasers, flashing lights. You've probably seen stuff like that in movies. Um, the rave scene, on the other hand, takes place on the fringes of society. Sometimes they'll break into warehouses. Sometimes they'll be part, people will bring a generator and speakers out into the forest or into the desert was really popular at the time or, um, or, you know, campsites and stuff like that and set up more in like the open air and the kind of nature kind of environment. And those open air scenarios can be 20, 30 people, or can go all the way up to, you know, hundreds or sometimes larger festivals or thousands of people. So the two, those two different halves of the DJ world have different, different drugs and different practices. So I came in through the rave world you know, lots of outdoor stuff, lots of, you know, speakers in the desert driving down to LA on the weekend to party with a group of friends. And then trans and, be and then because I really loved the art of DJing and I still do uh, not the, it's not the, the thing is what I always have to explain to people is like what most people think of DJs, they think of like Avicii or, or David Guetta, if you've heard those names is like guys up on stage, waving their arms around like a monkey and lasers and smoke and stuff. That wasn't what I did. Like what I did was, um, long slow expertly crafted mixes where it's like i am absolutely not the center of attention it's about creating a musical experience for people and so i was not i was not one of those i i really didn't like the the jumping around on stage guys at all um the the kind of the rave world the dj world that i was in it was like you're not actually supposed to show that much emotion because it's not about you it's about mm -hmm. the music so um that is a very different set of ethics so i really love the art of djing um, it's a very powerful thing to do, like playing, playing any instrument, if you really get into it. And so I wanted to, um, explore the possibilities for having a career as a DJ. So I transitioned into the nightclub world, um, uh, because the rave world was very insular. So the rave world in terms of like outdoor parties and festivals, their preferred substances would be, um, ecstasy. Um, it's called Molly now, but ecstasy then ecstasy was, uh, the difference between ecstasy and Molly that I understand is that ecstasy was cut with speed so that you would, um, so that you would feel more energetic while you're feeling all lovey. That's my understanding of the difference between the two. And then, uh, psychedelics like mushrooms and, and acid and stuff like that. And those were, those were pretty common in those environments. Um, things like, uh, cocaine, not permitted is considered not allowed here. Um, sometimes GHB, which I never, I never tried GHB people would get very hurt on it. And then in the nightclub world, they traffic for the most part uh, in, um, in ecstasy, cocaine, and ketamine. And so navigating, navigating through that world, that's just part of that, that's just part of that world, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and it's like the number of people, of course, alcohol in, in both. And the number of people who, who are uh, straight arrows, it's very low, very, very low. 
you know, it's rare to meet someone who's like comes into that world and like doesn't drink. And there are a few things that can be as excruciating as going to a DJ party and not drinking, because if the music is not super amazing, it's boring and weird because everyone's drunk and, you know, you get to see, you get to see this really sideways version of people while you're like totally Mm -hmm. straight. So from, from being in the DJ world and, and, you know, in both the festival rave side and the club side, I got exposed to like in the festival side is like all about Hinduism and Buddhism and new age stuff. And um, not so much what we'd identify as like paganism, like Norse style paganism. That's not, that wasn't really a big part of it. It might be now, but a lot of like tribal stuff, indigenous, et cetera. And then the nightclub world doesn't really talk too much about spiritual values, but it's absolutely not Christian. I can tell you that much, you know, you have, people doing, you know, you get people absolutely losing themselves in cocaine and, and uh, casual sex and alcoholism. And, you know, one of the a relative years ago before drugs was even in my mind had said to me, cocaine is God's way of telling you, you have too much money. And that was like, <clears throat> that was like a, re- that was a really great bit of advice. Cause that really implanted itself in my head. And I was like, I don't ever feel like I have too much money. So I'm not going to, cause I saw people absolutely like losing themselves on it. So I never, I never got into that. I never, it was never anything I was into. Um, but I also like, I didn't really like to party. I really wasn't the guy who was like, Hey, let's get super screwed up and talk to strangers all night. And then like get weirded out later. It was very much like I'm here for, I'm here to try and do a job. I'm trying to trying to advance a career an art, a pursuit that has spiritual meaning to me. So that really kept me grounded when a lot of people would lose their way in that world. You know, it might be difficult for people of an older generation to understand that whole scene and how the, the MDMA and the Molly, the ecstasy are kind of like intertwined and inseparable Mm -hmm. with the music and with the, the activities. But it makes sense if you recognize in the past, like it would have been very difficult or I wouldn't say very difficult using your terminology, there probably weren't very many quote unquote straight arrows in the Grateful Dead, you know, following, you know, that was a very LSD oriented scene. And it's almost like you can't really separate the music, which I do have an appreciation for a lot of their music from the, you know, the LSD that was, it was just part of the warp and woof of it. I mean, it was, it was interwoven. And uh, to me, that makes sense when I see, you know, this rave scene, I recognize how to some degree it, it really doesn't exist, or maybe it's not even given birth to without those substances being uh, tied up into the middle of it somehow. Yeah, because the rave scene, the electronic music world came from disco. And uh, disco in the 1970s, once the once, uh, once drum machines proliferated, and excuse me, that was very much driven by, um, by poppers, which way, way before my time and uh, cocaine. Um, like if you've seen the movie blow with Johnny Depp, you know, that cocaine really fueled that whole, that whole world. If you look back into um, like rock and roll, or sorry, you can go back even into the jazz age. The jazz age was entirely fueled by heroin. That is well-established. Miles Davis writes about that in his autobiography. He lists 20 different famous jazz musicians who in his own words were all shooting dope all shooting heroin so it was fueled by the jazz age was fueled by heroin rock and roll um was was uh, probably also in many ways fueled by heroin so you can look at all these that grunge for sure was 
So you can look at a lot of these really popular musical movements uh, for the past hundred or so years, and you can probably find a drug at the core of all of them, right? That that um, that creates an extrasensory perception um, of the of the of the music. It heightens the appreciation of, of the music, and that's what allows the it, the the drug travels on the carrier wave of the music, and the music travels on the carrier wave of of the drug. Right. And I, I don't think that um, I haven't listened to much of the Grateful Dead, but I, I definitely have heard, you know, people like, look, if you're not high, you know, it's going to be really difficult to listen to some of their more famous right. stuff. But as soon as you get high, it's like you're in it. You know what I mean? It's like I think I'll let Jordan Peterson, you know, perhaps someday talk about he talks more eloquently about music than I can about how to appreciate it at a higher level. So, um, but yeah, that's just a, that's just a fact of the matter that, you know, this whole world was fueled by various drugs and that's not unusual for music period hmm. well during that time if you can remember how would you have viewed or reflected upon faith be it jewish or the christian faith you were exposed to was that oh sure just real peripheral or would you have had like a, a certain judgment of it at that point in your life so as i'm going back into like the real the real high moments so to speak was um summer of 2000 summer of 2001 yeah those would be the real those would be the real high points and i don't remember thinking much about faith at the time i was taking in a lot of different influences so people were reading books like ram das be here now that classic one from the 60s unreadable and uh, uh the tibetan book of living and dying um which is by this Western man who um, became a, a Buddhist teacher. There's a lot of that. It's like Jack Cornfield was another one. There's a lot of Buddhist influences for sure. And I remember my friends and I would get together and we just sort of talk about higher, higher ideas, like you know, enlight. What does enlightenment mean? And you know, what does it mean like soul evolution? And I remember there was a lot of there's a lot of talk in the New Age world. A lot of talk about like well, he's just not that far along in his soul journey. You know, it's just profoundly judgmental where you're, like everyone, because the, the, the new age world thinks of, of individual souls as going through the classroom of life. And so each, each lifetime is one day in the classroom of life. And so more enlightened or wiser souls would be like graduate students of life. It's like, oh, he's so enlightened versus like someone who doesn't seem as enlightened as like, oh, he's a younger soul, like old soul, young soul, that whole thing is... It's kind of talked about and there was a lot of like where am i on the journey of life i think this is my last last lifetime mm. you know we're just a bunch of <clears throat> dumbasses so um and there's so a there lot was, of vague terminology too you know it's right not, yeah people say you know energy or you know <laughs> uh your shadow you know it's like these are i'm not saying they're wrong these are loose terms though it's like they need to be yeah. more more defined so you can actually you know, pinpoint exactly what are you targeting when you say your shadow or positive energy and things of that nature. Yes. Yeah. The shadow is like a Jungian term. And, and I, I think one of the things that isn't, cause I've looked into Carl Jung and some of his stuff was very influential for me as well. As I started, you know, as I went back to, I went back to college in, uh, to finish my degree in, um, in 2001, I took a class on Carl Jung and that was actually a lot of my introduction to studies about masculinity because we talked about Lord of the Rings, which was really popular at the time and was coming out. And talking about masculinity through the Lord of the Rings was really powerful for me to recognize that like, 
my inner life. And, and I think Jungian psychology was really good for me as well because I had grown up and this is, this will all kind of come together in what I'm doing now. I had grown up as a very thoughtful, you know, very quiet, very shy kid who was very much into um, poetry and, and music and art and had all these big thoughts in my brain. And I was told through every um, every avenue of culture around me, including school, that like if I wasn't into football and sports and beer and all that stuff, like that there's something broken about me. That's like I'm a I'm a broken man. And so when I finally took that class on Jungian psychology, and it was all about the inner life of the human being, and and particularly in this course, a man's inner life, I was like, wait a minute, my inner life is totally fine. I'm 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 not broken. I'm not a broken man. Like I'm just a normal guy. And that was really, really powerful for me. And, you know, sort of in that moment, as I'm marinating in all these different influences, something, something really was able to take hold of me, like, wait a minute, if, and I, and I pulled a bunch of ideas out of this, I can actually grow, I'm being exposed to all these different things that are intended to grow me as, as a soul. It's, it's ultimately mistaken, but if I can grow as a soul and I'm experiencing that I'm okay inside myself as a man, but my life isn't manifesting the way that I want, then I can change myself, certain things about myself to be more effective in my life. And so I pulled those ideas out. I'm like, wait a minute, I can actually ch- grow and change as a person. I can, I can transform myself. And I, I do think that there is something a, a positive that comes in the new age world. Like I don't want to throw everything out because there are a lot of holistic health practices, for example, like eating organic food. Right. right? And, and I don't think that, um, I don't think that wearing natural fibers is all that bad of a thing to do either versus wearing petroleum fibers. Like, I don't think that they have everything wrong. And one of the things that I think that they do have right is that um, there is a way to live skillfully, right? There's a way to live unskillfully and a way to live skillfully. And the new age, if it's good at anything, is like you're in control of how you live your life, mm-hmm. right? It's very, it's very it, if it's dogmatic about one thing, it's dogmatic about that. Right. It's just like you, right. you are in control with how you live your life and you can change your life. It gives you a bunch of tools that won't actually take your soul in the right direction, which is a better place to start. But it's clear in that if you want to improve your experience of life, that's within your power and, and you right. have the ability to work with your own inner reality to do that. And so that was where that introduction came from for me, particularly with regard to how I live my life as a man, not just as a person. And so, um, and so yeah, so I, I where where does faith fit into that? I don't think that faith really fits in because the way that the new age kind of works is it's not like you have faith in this giant, you know, God who's shattered into a billion different consciousnesses and you all have to realize the eternal unity. It's, it's not really a faith thing. It's like a job. <laughs> right? You don't have faith in your job. It's just what you do, you know? So, but Christianity, I can say for sure was like a million miles away. Like that's, we don't even, they're patriarchal oppressors and they're wrong about everything, right? That's, that's what, that's what Christianity really is in that world. So that was, so it was just like, there's no reason to even go into it because you're going to open up the Bible and you're just going to read this big book of lies, right? Or books about Christianity will, um, will be, uh, you know, about Christ consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to trying to fit Christ into the new age kind of mold. And in doing that, they have to throw out everything Christ said about himself. Right. Like, like, he didn't say that about himself. Like, who's the, oh, that's just a lie. Like, well, wait, 
it's kind of funny looking back. Right. I mean, in my attempt to, you know, find some either relationship or balance or something between these two worlds, I run into that a lot. You know, people approach me in an affirming kind of way. And sometimes once they realize I'm not speaking about this conceptual Christ consciousness, I'm actually speaking about, uh, you know, the living incarnate God, you know, that kind of, I can tell it puts a little ice on on the, the, the conversation sometimes because they either rightly or wrongly, you know, recognize me as in some form of a dogmatic, you know, type yes. uh, paradigm. So, yes. well, but, but the new age, like, well, it's not in the new age, Christianity, it's the one religion of the world that does not play nice with the other religions. All the other world religions play nice with each other, right? There's no, you know, there's, there are very few with the exception of Islam, to be fair. Um, cause I have been to, I have been to Asia and if you ever see a, a, a statue of a Buddha that's missing its nose, um, there's a reason for that. That's called being, that's called being defaced, literally being defaced because, um, there was a belief, I'm not sure if it was in Buddhism or, or I think it was probably in Buddhism that if, uh, if the Buddha's face was messed up, that you couldn't actually worship at that, <laughs> at that idol. And so when Islam came and conquered, uh, nation like Indonesia, right? Like uh, Indonesia is the uh, highest percentage Islamic nation in the world, like 90%. All throughout that country and India as well, you'll see all these defaced Buddhas that are missing their noses because to um, to take off the nose of a Buddha was to um, make it not sacred. There's a word for that, desacralize or something like that. Mm-hmm. That might be the word. And so, um, and so Islam does not play nice, did not play nice with Buddhism. And there's also been videos of, um, giant Buddhist statues being destroyed, like in the past 20 years by, um, by Islamists that have taken over areas of, of India and Pakistan, and Afghanistan, where there was some overlap. India has a lot of this as well. So Islam doesn't necessarily play nice with other world religions, but Christianity especially doesn't. And so to someone within the new age, they're like, well, bro, that comes off as really dogmatic. It's like, well, I mean, if you want to look at it that way, it is, but it's actually like gravity is pretty dogmatic too, <laughs> right? right? Those laws of physics are so damn dogmatic, make you really uncomfortable. Yeah, that's just true. So were there any particular circumstances that happened in your life? I know that you said when you went back to school, understanding masculinity through that Lord of the Rings um, class and kind of you know reinterpreting your own sense of masculinity was kind of life changing was there any other circumstances or or things that set you on a different trajectory yeah so um i also uh well, I went to burning man because i lived in the bay area and I'm, if you're familiar with the burning man festival it's like a 70 80 000 person festival in the in the on a dry lake bed in nevada it's a big arts festival giant pagan festival there's a lot of childlike wonder and joy there but there's a lot of spiritual darkness as well again lots of pagan new age psychedelic kind of influences and and worse but um i first went in 2003 and then i went back again in uh 2013 10 years later it changed a lot and then i went back in uh 2015 and when i went back in 2015 i was just coming off a breakup and so um, like literally like a week fresh and because it was like, why would I ever go to Burning Man? And then I went through a breakup and I'm like, I'm going to Burning Man, um, which you can do in the Bay Area. 
And when I got there, a guy who I was camped next to, I had mentioned that I'd gone through a breakup. He's like, you should go to this camp called Spirit Dream. Um, they do lots of healing stuff and maybe they can help you work through some of your grief I'm, grief. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Uh, because I had done a whole bunch of new age healing modalities, you know, I'd done past life regression, hypnotherapy, I'd done uh, sort of a humanistic psychotherapy. I'd done, uh, various meditations. I had studied the tarot and the Kabbalah for a couple of years, which is a whole, which is a whole thing we can go into because I really, um, I was genuinely curious. Like it, it was like, and, and part of the new age is that you're always looking for a new practice, a new discipline, because you're trying to untie the knot of your consciousness, right? And so, you, because in the new age, in the Buddhist world, your consciousness doesn't really exist. It's a self-perpetuating illusion. And so your job is to undo the illusion of your knot of consciousness and seek, cease existing. That's nirvana, that's enlightenment, mm -hmm. when you merge back into the God consciousness. And the thing that's preventing you from doing that is your attachment to your sense of self. So it's a way, the way that you unwind your attachment to your sense of self is you do all this inner self work and it, un, it loosens the knot, right? And so you mm -hmm. try it this way and then that doesn't work all the way. So then you try this thing and then you try this thing and you, you invest more and more in it. So it, it invites all of these sort of like um, paganistic spiritual practices, right? Mm -hmm. Which are countless like countless they're you know and you and and i don't know whether you got to try them all but you're not disincentivized from trying them all so i had tried many of them so i went to i went to this camp being like okay i'm, I'm good with inner healing stuff no problem so i sat down in this camp and um again this is in august of 2015 i sat down in this camp and i was seated in front of three people um uh, a woman in her uh, early 40s a woman in her i think late 50s and a man in his 70s and we proceeded to have like this incredible three and a half hour long healing ceremony where I got to go into stuff from my childhood and release a lot of anger that I had, like release some judgments I had on my parents and really deep moving stuff that I'd never shared with anyone, finally letting it out and, and purging it all out, right? Um, and, and really like being, there's power in being able to speak things that we're afraid to say. For sure. And yeah. And as I'm going through this ceremony, or that really, it's not really a, a session, I'm looking around in the tent and I'm trying to figure out who are these people? Because there's no, there's no, I don't see any Buddha statues. There's no Vishnu statues, no, no Shiva, no Alex Gray psychedelic art. You know, there's some, there are some colorful, you know, kind of paintings, but nothing that's particularly evocative of a particular of a particular tradition, which is unusual, right? Normally you'll see like, mm -hmm. if nothing else, someone will go by like a Shiva statue you know, with a dancing Shiva destroyer and just set it right there, you know, cause it's like a thing, right? No one knows what it means, but they always have it there. And so I'm going through this healing session. It's like, okay, I don't know who these people are, but cool. So at the end of the session, three and a half hours in, you know, I'm finally complete with the things I need to do. The older woman, whose name is Katie, was standing behind me with her hands on either side of my head was, was speaking uh, and, and I couldn't hear I couldn't hear what she was saying I couldn't understand what she was saying and my eyes were closed and with my eyes closed um, I had this I had this vision like very vivid and, and, uh, and with my eyes closed my mind's eye and it was of a street of burning at burning man I could see the dust I could see people riding their bikes and you know flags blowing in the breeze you know and 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 all of that and this and in this vision this man walks up to me and he's got goggles on, ski goggles, which is not unusual at Burning Man because you have to keep the dust out of your eyes if it gets dusty. And I recognize 
I recognize the, the shape of his head and the structure of his jaw and hair and stuff. And I just see the face. I'm like, okay. And then the face like seemed to insist to me. It's like, no, look. Like, okay, I'm, I'm looking. I see you. So then the, the vision ended. And then Katie, the woman who was standing behind me, she said, there's someone I want you to meet. So I'm like, okay. So I got up and I followed her to the other side of the tent. On the other side of the tent, she walked me around to this pillar, this four square kind of pillar, to a side of the pillar that was facing away from me that I couldn't have seen. Not when I came into the tent and not when I was sitting during the healing session. Like it, was, it would have been impossible for me to see. She, she, she walked me up to the pillar. She turned me around. She pointed me at that side of the pillar and painted on the pillar was the face that I had just seen in my, in my vision, minus the goggles. And it was the face of Jesus Christ from this uh, little girl named Akiane, who was like seven years old when she painted this portrait of Christ. And I'll send you a link to that specific portrait. That was the face that, um, that I had just seen. I was like freaked out, got down on the dirt, bowed my head to the ground. Like, you know, um, I, had, I had just met Christ at Burning Man. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing about that is everyone who goes to Burning Man jokes, I met Jesus at Burning Man. Everyone, that's just the joke. Like, I met Jesus at Burning Man. That's what they say. I actually met Jesus at Burning Man. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. So that was, um, that was a big turning point for me for many reasons, but not the ones that you might expect, because that was the one where I finally decided that I was going to travel. Because I'd always, since I had gotten into the rave scene in 2000, I had always wanted to travel the world. That's what I discovered that I wanted to do. One of the reasons I wanted to be a DJ was that I wanted to travel the world, solo travel the world. And so at this healing session, that's when I finally decided that I was going to do that. Um, and at that same healing session, I, I met Christ and, and that was a big, um, that was a big shift, but we'll get, we'll get to that later. Uh, wow. You had your own little Damascus road there. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. I know. Uh, I actually interviewed another, um, a, a priest who has a, uh, Christian ministry at Burning Man. So really, um, so there are people there who are, we're doing that work. Yeah, the, my friends uh, who ran the camp, sorry, I, I forgot to mention, they were called Spirit Dream, and they had been doing a Christian ministry there for 12 years. Like, leave it leave it to me to find, like, to go wandering into the one Christian ministry group at a festival of, like, 80,000 people. And so, so they had met Larry Harvey, the founder, and they weren't, they weren't, again, they didn't have a big cross out front. Like, they they were doing it, they were charismatic, and so they were doing it, they're like, we're just here to share the Father's love with people. We're not here to preach. Like, if you want to hear about it, we'll, we'll talk to you about it. But we're not here to do that. We're here to show a whole other side to Christianity than the one that you may have experienced. And then so that Christmas, uh, like three, four months later, I went to go visit them. And they mostly live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Like, it's a big camp that's all the people live across the country. But I, most of them live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So I went to spend Christmas with them. And they were so warm and so loving and so non-judgmental. And they were singing and, you know, we were drinking wine and just was like, what kind of Christians are these? Because the only Christians that I had ever met were super dogmatic and they were super rigid. And they didn't really seem to have a whole lot of understanding of, of suffering. And I think that was the thing that, that, that a lot of stuff in the New Age gets, that they have an acute understanding of suffering because, you know, life is suffering is is what is what buddha says right that's the four noble truths is like life is suffering and christianity um doesn't speak as i mean christian suffering is central to christianity about bearing your suffering 
but it's not always the ones that I had met, especially at the Catholic school, were not always great at talking about suffering, like how it shows up in your life and what you're supposed to do with it. Buddhism's answer is to escape suffering by escaping consciousness, right? That's Buddhism's answer. Christianity's answer is very different. Mm-hmm. Christianity's answer is no, you bear your suffering because your suffering redeems you. And that's two very, very different answers. And so that's why um, that's why the New Age has the character it does. It's it's fundamentally escapist. It's like I'm trying to not exist anymore. I'm trying right. to live as skillfully as possible until I cannot exist. Whereas Christianity says I'm trying to take on the cross of the world in some ways, right? Bear my suffering to allow redeem impurities, so I can give more of myself to the world. It's not escapist at all. Right. I do think you know us as Christians in an effort to do that, sometimes it gets a little distorted yeah. and we begin to deny the suffering we have or the suffering of others. You know, yes. there's a, there's definitely a, you know, pull up your bootstraps and, and get to work kind of attitude that I think we probably could better integrate and, and be more, just more kind to people, you know, yeah. um, life's rough, man. And so that, that I think a lot of times that dogmatism comes through because we, you know, we all want to put a pretty face on it and be like, Jesus is here. Everything should be good, bro. Come on, you know, let's suck it up. Yeah. And, and that's not, that's not the experience people have had in life. You know, they've had dark times, you know, and um, you can't just uh, pretend those things didn't happen to you. And it's very difficult and sometimes painful. You know, I think sometimes we get uncomfortable when other people start discussing their suffering, you know, it gets, yeah. gets, gets a little, we get a little squeamish, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Reverend Brian Baker, uh, they, they started a ministry, I guess they've been involved for, oh, I'd have to go back. Uh, I believe it's episode six where I interviewed him. They're just very open hearted. They welcome people. They use their name almost as a way of reaching out to people in a way to welcome them. That is a little bit, there's a little shock factor to it. Their, yeah. their group, their uh, camp is called religious as fuck. Yeah. It's a, okay. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not, you know, uh, judging that yeah. whatever, you know, they're, they're doing good things there in the name of Christ, but that, that brings people in. So people are like, what is this? You know? Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, there, there's, there, I think there's other groups too. You know, I've never attended burning man. I'm kind of tempted to, especially if I could, if I could participate in one of those groups, you know, where they're actually mm-hmm. ministering to people. I feel like that would be, um, that would be interesting, but, but I'm not so sure about all that yet. So, yeah, well, I think um, one of the reasons that Christians get uh, have a difficult time talking to people is that for Christians, we're in enemy territory, right? Like, you know, this is a, this is a, a behind the lines mission, you know, to, to redeem a, a fallen world. And so there's a way in which, you know, the armor of God prayer, for example, like there's a way in which we have a warrior kind of posture towards reality. And, and Christ was very confrontational, right, with, with the Pharisees in particular. Paul was very confrontational in his speaking, right, and his letters as well. Like there's a confrontational aspect to it. And the, the tricky part is that it can be very difficult to say when speaking to an individual person is this person, um, are they hurting? Are they, rep- are they representing something that is fundamentally, are they consciously representing something that's fundamentally opposed to me? Are they unconsciously representing something that's fundamentally opposed to me? It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. And so 
the need to um, protect and defend ourselves <clears throat> energetically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, because the devil, you know, roams around like a lion looking for who he can devour, mm -hmm. right? And everything, everything in the world is seeking to get us to fall away from the faith. And so it can be very difficult to ground ourselves in this way. It's like, I'm going to communicate things in this ground, in this very clear and safe way, because I'm, I've mastered them enough inside myself to not feel threatened by someone's opposing ideas, like that whole apologetics thing, right? So I, I think getting good at apologetics is not something that, it's not easy for everybody. Right. Good point. So after leaving there and having that huge experience, you know, where, where did that lead you from your meeting Jesus at Burning Man? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So I went to have Christmas with them and that was great, but I didn't actually become Christian then. I just remember going to spend time with them and I heard a couple songs by Bethel. And that I was, was like, in Coeur d'Alene? That was in Coeur d'Alene, yeah. It's like, this is Christian music? Because I had heard Christian music before. It just seemed very like light and airy and no angst, which was like, it, it felt, I understand why that's the case, but from, from a secular point of view, music without angst is missing something. So listening to Bethel with like, oh, there's, there's a bass guitar here and there's drums, amazing. Um, and that was really powerful as well. I didn't know anything about Bethel at the time. And then from that point, I went to go travel which I'd always wanted to do. So I went, I went through South America and I continued doing a lot of the same new age kind of practices. So whether it be meditation retreats or um, body work retreats, ayahuasca was a big part of my travels through South America. So, and also uh, strangely enough, when <laughs> it's kind of ironic actually, now that I think about it. So I hung out with my friends from Spirit Dream at Burning Man until they left on Saturday. Because Saturday is the burn night. Saturday at Burning Man is burn night when this entire great get together in the desert with friends turns into a giant mess. <laughs> really turns into a giant mess. It's kind of sad, actually. And that night is I met a guy out in the desert who recommended I try ayahuasca, um, which I'm, perhaps you know of. Um, and uh, so when I got back to uh, the Bay Area, I didn't, be, I didn't become Christian. The thought actually didn't even enter into my mind to become Christian. It's like, oh, maybe I'll be Christian now because I was still in this universalist mindset where it's like all the world's religions, they're all, they're all one. It's the perennial philosophy. They're all different paths up the mountain. So it's like, oh, this is a version of Christianity I didn't know before. Now Christianity gets to seat at my table, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. that, was, that was as much as it, as it had happened. And then as soon as my friends from Spirit Dream leave, what do I do? I meet the guy who, who, uh, who points me to an ayahuasca shaman. So in November of that same year, um, I tried ayahuasca for the first time. I did three ceremonies in three nights, and that was uh, that was an experience for sure. Um, and we can talk about ayahuasca separately if you'd like. It's probably better to do that. And so then I went down to South America and I did an ayahuasca retreat in Peru, which was seven ceremonies in twelve and twelve nights, which was a lot. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then I did uh, and then I did one more at another center. I tried Wachuma, which is San Pedro cactus. And that was a lot, of, a lot of new age stuff in South America. And then I went to Asia, Australia, New Zealand, um, and uh, India. Um, and, in, and in Asia, I went to Mongolia and China and Japan and, and all those. So while I was on that way, you know, I stopped by all of various new age kind of hotspots. So Bali and Byron Bay and Goa. And then when I was in India, um, when I was in India, I did as much quote unquote spiritual stuff you know, new age stuff as I could find. Like I, I had a, I had a, I had a rule for myself when I was traveling. I'm not going to actively seek out experiences 
but if like spiritual experiences, but if they present themselves to me, I'll say yes. You know, cause I didn't want to, it's like, I don't want to go off this. I feel like I want to go do this thing. I don't want to divert off this road, but if someone mm-hmm. offers me the opportunity. So let's see, when I was in India, I went to the Kumela Hindu festival, which is, um, which happens every, uh, small ones happen every, happen every two years and big ones happen every four years. And, uh, it's a hundred, it was 190 million Hindus over the course of like seven weeks. Um, passed through this festival. It's the largest, I think the the Guardian in the UK called it the largest ga- human gathering in history. And so the Kumela festivals where Hindus from across the country come to bathe in the Ganges River on astrologically significant mornings. So I bathed in the Ganges River five times. Um, and I was literally like at a festival. I mean, at any given time, there were millions of Hindus there, um, uh, 10, 20, probably in any given moment more I was like one of there, there might have been like three white people at the whole damn thing, whole mm-hmm. damn thing and one of my buddies was one of them so um and so i was there i went to um uh vipassana buddhist meditation retreat um by this man goenka he passed away but his teaching has now spread around the world it's a free meditation retreat it's 10 hours of buddhist meditation a day for 10 days broken into one and two hour segments so silent meditation retreat as well and so I did that in the mountains of uh, Kashmir. And um, let's see, I went to various ashrams when I was in India. Um, I didn't do any yoga, actually. I went to this u- utopian community called Oroville. There was a Hindu sage named Sri Aurobindo, and his um, spiritual partner was named the mother. After Sri Aurobindo died, she set up Oroville as this like, you know, utopian community based on their values. There was this big shrine, this big golden ball thing building called the Matra Mandir, and you can go inside and there's a meditation center in there. I mean, this is the number of stuff that I did. You know, the, I did this t- series of 12, um, series of 12 meditations on sacred geometry. Um, and then uh, finally, while I was traveling, I, the last thing I did was um, a five MEO DMT ceremony called um, Bufo Alvarius. So it's the, um, it's the venom of the Sonoran desert toad. So the Sonoran desert toad excretes this venom so that when birds try to eat it, the bird gets like this dose of DMT and freaks out and flies away. Like, I'm not eating that. And we humans being what we are are like, oh, maybe I can smoke that. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I had that. And that was, um, that was an absolutely awful experience. I had two ceremonies blacked out, blacked out twice had, well, first time I blacked out, it was outside in the dirt and I was apparently rummaging around in the dirt, like an animal messed up my face, black eye. And then, um, and then like I, I caught up and I was walking back to the, to the house where everyone else was. And everyone's like looking at me like, well, what happened? I'm like, what do you mean? And I go to touch my nose. My nose is bleeding and I've got dirt all over my face. And then the second ceremony, the second day full on like blacked out face plant under the hardwood floor and blacked my other eye. So I flew back from this, this DMT weekend with an absolutely messed up face and two, two black eyes. Wow. Drugs are bad. Okay. So, but I did all the things. Wow, those are, I mean, that's some extensive and uh, impressive traveling uh, yeah. schedule you've got there. That was, that was, that's pretty cool. I can only imagine how formidable and uh interesting those experiences were oh man yeah and that's that's why i speak about things now the way that i do because i've seen so much 
right? It's like, it's like I meant when I said, like, I've, I've made all the mistakes and I right. can tell you, this is why you don't do that. That's why you don't do that. And, and God really blessed me with the opportunity to do that. I'm going to be really clear about that. Like, like it, was, it was such an enormous blessing to have, um, to have the means to do that, to be a man who was motivated to do it, and, and also to be given the right intention to do it. Like, I wanted to see for myself. Don't, don't, I don't want to hear about what China is like. I want to go see for myself what China is mm -hmm. like. I don't want to hear about what India is like. I want to see for myself. I don't want to hear about what these experiences are. I believe in myself enough to be able to pull this off and to be able to hold myself together when I do it and to not, again, drink the Kool-Aid, but to be able to come back and say, this is what I've discovered. And I think it was, I think it was a real blessing. And that's why I speak very forcefully about these things now, because I was blessed with the opportunity to do it. I was brought home safely. I know for a fact that I was protected from from dark from dark influences, particularly um, on the on my psychedelic trips, and um, and yeah, and so I, I I'm I'm happy to be able to report back from the frontier. <laughs> well, it sounds like ayahuasca might have been made an impact on you. Can you explore that just a little? Yeah. So um, the way that ayahuasca factored in at the time was I. I mentioned that I had been exploring masculinity, and one of the things that I had trouble with throughout my life was um, I had trouble related to relating to women um, because I had been I had been raised very passive, and so now here I am traveling the world, and uh, as it turns out, about like half 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 the world is women, I've heard, roughly, and yeah. Uh, roughly yeah, and so I wanted to be able to be a bit more comfortable about, around them. Let's put let's put it that way. And so I was like, well, ayahuasca is so trendy right now. I don't want to do it. But now here I am down in Peru and I should probably do it. So my intention was to try and improve my ability to relate to women as I'm on this around the world adventure. And so that's why, that's why I went in and why I did it. And um, what was interesting about that experience is that I learned that our surface, the surface issues of our lives that we struggle with are um, really just the tip of the iceberg for what's actually going on beneath us in our subconscious mind. And it, through that process, you know, what any, what any psychedelic does, it, it, it sensitizes you to your inner experience. Like, so, like even alcohol can do that. Like you have a sip and suddenly like have a drink of wine and suddenly you're having all these deep thoughts about the music you're listening to or the poem you just read or the person that you're talking to, like, because we live in this kind of narrow constrained kind of way. And so drinking ayahuasca not only sensitized me to my, my inner reality, but it sensitized me to the absolute darkness that lives in the outer reality, right? And that's why I can say I kept, was kept safe because over the course of those seven ceremonies, I got to witness, and I, I've never really talked about this before, I got to witness not only things from my own past, but in, in sort of like visions, um, the, the, the entities out there that... Um, I don't know what I don't know what the Christian language for this would be, but the entities out there that that feed on our energy, you know, we're, we're sources of food for disembodied mm. beings energetically. I don't know if there's particularly Christian language around that, but I'll just go with this one. And so in the first ceremony, um, I would see like little little amoebas, you know, like little things that are not really conscious, but mm. um, they're just like amoeba. They just they eat whatever's in front of them. Right. And with it, with all seven ceremonies, the these entities feeding on my energy became more complex 
like almost up the food chain, right? Mm -hmm. um, from like amoebas to multicellular organisms to like kind of like fish, you know, to um, to to more like animals to more like living beings to this giant cosmic darkness, right? Like this whole scale of of evil that was feeding on all this energy from all all of these people, and and the the things that I saw were horrific, absolutely horrific, like like creatures like out of almost like flesh creatures out of like a horror movie and and i i look back on that now and i've never talked about this before because everyone there's a whole big thing about ayahuasca right now in in the public joe rogan talks about it aubrey marcus talks about it um uh who else aaron rogers talks about it megan kelly you know another they're all talking about it like it's it's really really bad and they're driving so many of the people to this and I can tell you that from my own firsthand personal experience, like there is, there are a lot of very dark entities out there that are looking for the opportunity to prey on people that are not aware of their energetic openness. And by drinking these, by drinking these substances, whatever, whatever authentic healing you might get, um, I can tell you one thing that it's not doing. It's not bringing you closer to the Lord. It's not bringing you closer to God's law because within the, in the Bible, Whenever anyone has a true experience of God, they fall down on their face and, and they lay prostrate because they are not worthy to witness the glory of God. And that is not what happens on these retreats. Absolutely not. People think they have an experience of God. What they're really experiencing uh, is this oceanic feeling of oneness and belonging, which is not God, which is not God. That's, that's a motherly feeling. That's the, the, um, the quote unquote divine the divine mother that they're feeling it's definitely not god because what i've actually because i have experienced that oneness like oh i feel so close to god no you're just feeling this divine motherly that's wrapping you up as opposed to god that's showing you his law and how to be in the world but in that being wrapped up by the divine mother all these other influences you know can come in now there are there are um there are good and bad shamans right i do believe that there are shamans that that are they they believe that they are doing the right thing and they're not actively out to harm anybody and they want to keep the people safe to have these experiences because that's their authentic belief systems but there are very much shamans that are dark shamans that know exactly what they're doing that are leading people like lambs to the slaughter and we're we're seeing we're seeing that so i felt i got i've gotten very lucky through my life to only work with shamans who were very sincere and, and generous and genuine men and women who did not want to see anybody harmed. Their ideology is darkness, but they themselves are not dark, right? Mm -hmm. like you, can, you, can, you can be sincerely mistaken. And I believe that they were sincerely mistaken. And I believe that because I got very fortunate to find those worlds, that I was preserved by God from further harm that I could have, that I could have experienced. Because the things that I've seen, they're devouring. They're absolutely absolutely devouring at all levels at a level of like i'm just unconscious like an animal will eat food that's in front of it because it's hungry versus a human being will prey on somebody specifically to get something from mm, them right and i've i've seen all of this and it's i actually feel very tense in my chest talking about it because i've never heard anyone talk about this stuff because oh ayahuasca it's hippie and light it's healing it's like uh -uh. sorry i hate to break it to you there's a lot more going on behind the scenes Right. There's, you know, like you mentioned, there's a huge celebrity kind of cult following. Uh, and, and I understand why, you know, when someone goes and has that kind of experience, it's really hard not to share it, especially if they interpreted it positively. Right. And so naturally, you know, the, they're going to come back and 
have this, you know, amazing tale to tell. And, and if they experience something positive, it's very difficult for them. And I, I mean, I've been guilty of this myself. It's difficult to really feel the, the deep weight of someone who expresses a very negative experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think just being honest about every aspect of it. And in particularly, I'm glad you brought that up. Some of these people operating in that space are kind of benign. Like you said, maybe yeah. they're not doing something godly, but they have really good intentions and they're trying to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's, it's spoken of enough that there are a lot of people who are just doing this to take advantage of people. Yes. And those people are working. Well, I'll say this and it, it's going to sound, you know, woo woo to our more materialistic <laughs> listeners, I'm sure. <clears throat> and uh, many Christians are very, you know, yeah. right brain materialistic kind of thing. Uh, but there are spiritual forces in the world working with us and against us. Agreed. And people are actively working in concert with those entities for good and for evil. Yes. And, you know, I, I don't think the modern, modern people are willing to recognize that we're swimming around in a spiritual fishbowl 24 mm-hmm. seven. And yeah. we just, only, because we're only able to see and feel this narrow range of, of input we don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the spirits that are all around us. And so I think it prevents us from interpreting a lot of things anywhere beyond just a purely material understanding, you know, because we, we don't actively witness the spiritual uh, forces in the world. So we tend to live at least slightly in denial of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, Christianity makes really clear like we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but the wickedness in high places, powers and principalities, powers and principalities of the world. Yeah. Right. <coughs> and, and I, and I do believe that even secular people are beginning to abandon that materialistic view. You know, I think the fact that spiritual forces are at play in the world, you know, even secular people are beginning to recognize that and come to grips with it, whether they are taking sides or not at least they're beginning to uh, recognize it. Yeah. There was a, there's an author, gosh, her name escapes me right now. She's a liberal professor following everything that happened in COVID. She's like, maybe we intellectuals should give another thought to the existence of evil. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, because that's the whole thing, like our culture in America, liberal secular culture denies the existence of evil. Right. The new age denies the existence of evil and the new age drives a lot of our culture, whether we recognize it or not, you know, like the, the proliferation of yoga, the word, everyone knows the word karma, right? Karma is not a Western concept, like cause and effect is Western for every action. There's equal, equal and opposite reaction, but karma, probably people have heard the word, not like namaste, right? Things like that. So it's just part of our world. The new age. It, it, it denies the existence of evil, which is a problem. And when I say evil, like, I mean, people who do bad things 
because they're bad and they they know that they're bad. That's what I mean by evil. Like all of us during the day, because this was another actually going back to high school. I remember um, when I was, a, I think I was a senior, I took a class uh, with um, one of the priests, Father Rena, as an English literature class. And we read uh, Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And in Dr. Faust, in Dr. Faustus, the play, Christopher Marlowe was one of Shakespeare's contemporaries. In Dr. Faustus, the play, the Dr. Faustus uh, sells his soul to Mephistopheles for, I think it's knowledge, something like that. And Dr. Faustus goes to, goes to hell at the end. The devil comes to collect on the soul. And the, remember the Father Rena asked the class, was, was Dr. Faustus a good person or a bad person? And he said, if you think he was a bad person, raise your hand. Everyone raise their hand. If you think he was a good person, raise your hand. I raised my hand. And it was like the only guy in the class who thought he was a good person. And what I was trying to say at the time was that I didn't think he was bad. I just think he was deeply mistaken and in the last moment prideful. Like he had thought he did something so wrong and couldn't possibly accept forgiveness from, from Christ for it. It's like, I've, what I've done is too bad to be forgiven, right? As opposed to like middle finger F you, I'm going with this guy. And so in that moment, I was like, he wasn't evil. He was just mistaken. And many of us go through life, everybody, everybody, we go through life weak. You know, we're unable to live up to our own high standards for ourselves and the high standards that God sets for us. That's most of us. I think that's most of it, like sin, right? Like we're, we miss, we miss the mark. That's that version of sin. By the way, I learned um, recently um, by this guy, Neil Kramer, I'll send, you'll actually really like his talk. He's another podcast host. He was like, there's 25 different words for sin. Like there's, cause there's all different moral degrees of it, you know, mm -hmm. like, like eating the, eating the, the second piece of cake is a very different sin from like, you know, uh, theft, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right. Very, yeah. So, but we lose that distinction in the word sin, but most of us go through life. I think just weak, we're unable to really, you know, force ourselves up to the high standard. That is a very different way of being than I'm going to actively hurt this person because I take pleasure from causing pain right in this person right that's that's evil and the new age doesn't admit that that evil exists but there's no other explanation for what's been going on in the world other than there is like for the past couple of years longer but for the past couple of years especially that there are some people that take pleasure in other people's suffering and pain that, that, i mean i think that's that's unavoidable and that's what this liberal scholar was talking about we need to reconsider the existence of evil mm. Yeah, I think and, if you uh, if you choose to accept the existence of evil, then you have to start processing and possibly take sides on things, which can be enormously challenging. <laughs> so it's much. Uh, I don't want to accuse anyone necessarily of of you know intellectual laziness, but or philosophical laziness. But it's kind of if like if you can just avoid saying or judging something as good or evil, then that prevents you from having to like make those segregations in your mind and it forces you to judge your own actions and thoughts and intentions of your heart based on what side of the line does do your actions, thoughts and intentions fall on mm -hmm. so, and other people's yeah, oh, and, sure, other, yeah. And, and to be fair to, to imagine the existence of actual evil, not as a, something from history, but it's something that's present and with us right now is it's a really scary thought because most of us, I really like this analogy from, um, from Lord of the Rings, you know, when at the start of the Lord of the Rings story, um, Frodo is in, is in the Shire 
And the Shire is pretty idyllic, right? It's like, it's almost womb-like in its separation from the world. And yeah, there are, you know, kind of well, kind of snarky people and people are flawed and, and all that stuff. And it makes that clear. But then he sets out on this adventure into Middle Earth and he discovers like first the Black Riders, right? Like this thing, these things are, are inhuman and they want, to, they want to kill me, they want to destroy me. And then as he progresses further, you know, the Balrog and the Orcs, you know, and then armies and Sauron, this giant spider, you know, and he discovers the existence of real evil in the world to a degree, and also Gollum and Mount Doom, like right at the center of it. And um, him and Sam are really the only two in the entire story that ex encounter the full extent of evil, not to mention the ring, right, that really encounter the full extent of evil in a way that he they never could have understood just in the Shire. Like if you had told Frodo in the Shire, like, hey, you know, uh, that way there's this giant volcano mountain with this eye, this disembodied eye that, you know, is trying to destroy and take over everything and all these terrifying creatures. And that's, he would like, whatever, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, right? But the reality is when you begin venturing out into the world and set on an adventure, you discover that evil is very real, but most people are literally like the hobbits in the Shire. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, but most people's desires are just like the hobbits in the Shire. They want to, you know, do their job, have their, you know, have their um, their time in the pub or whatever with their friends and loved ones and some celebrations at the Harvest Festival once or twice a year, and that's it. But not everyone is called to be a Frodo or a Sam or a Merry and Pippin, you know. Um, and for people who aren't called to be that, the the notion of imagining like a giant spider or the notion of imagining an orc army is just so far removed from their reality that it sounds unreal. That's just my take on it. That's an excellent analogy because I think people can get their head around it. I think because we, you know, watch the news, read about wars, both both current and in history, you know, we think we have a concept of of how dark things can go when people are motivated by by hate or greed or uh, racism or whatever, but we still are somehow insulated from it. At least in mm -hmm. in America, I think we are, and I'm I'm thankful for that. But it it causes us to be quite naive mm -hmm. um, because we've never experienced that kind of deep, dark, uh, foreboding sense of suffering, pain, and destruction. You know, mm -hmm. so it's it's a comfortable place to be, but it makes us naive, I believe. Well, how did you begin to understand spirituality in a Christian framework? Hmm. So while I was traveling um, and I was doing all these crazy spiritual things with various traditions around the world, uh, I was I kept in touch with my friends in Coeur d'Alene and uh, in like a Facebook <clears throat> messenger group and um, just would message them from time to time what I was doing and um then when i finally moved back to the united states in february of 2020 because i had been living in new zealand there's a woman that i was dating there um things didn't work out and so i left new zealand to move back to the united states in february 2020 dodged a bullet there um new zealand is not where i'd want to be right yeah, now for sure um but i kept in touch and and one of the the leaders of the camp his name is rob he had said 
uh, he wanted to send me one of his favorite books for Christmas. I said, sure, okay. So I, I gave him the address of my friend um, who lived in Northern California. And uh, the intention was for him, was for, um, was for my friend to ship me the book to New Zealand. But what ended up happening is I moved back to the States and uh, I arrived in the Bay Area and my friend uh, Jeff came to pick me up at the airport and then was able to give me the, was able to give me the book. And the book was uh, Simply Christian by N.T. Wright, if you're familiar with him. I've heard of it. I've, I've, I'm not familiar with the book itself. So when I, I got home, like the day, so here's the, here's the cool thing about the story. At the Camp Spirit Dream in Burning Man in, in 2015 was when I finally decided like, okay, I'm going to travel. This is what I'm going to do. And um, it's okay to do that. I have, a, I have a, I guess, right to do it. It's, it's, it's a good desire in my heart. I'm going to do it. I met Christ that same moment, that same, that same experience. Set out on my adventure. Four years. Four years to the day. I come back. Um, for, I left on March 16th, 2016. I returned on March, uh, sorry, March 21st, 2016. I returned on March 21st, 2020, when I moved into this apartment and signed a lease. That was the end of my adventure. So when I left from Burning Man in August of 2015, traveled, the day I arrived back in the United States, February 2020, Simply Christian was put in my hands. Christ sent me on this around the world adventure, and he was waiting for me when I got back because I took this book and I did this program called 75 Hard, which is a, it's like a, a fitness transformation program, 75 days. We're supposed to do a, a six things for 75 days straight. And one of the things you have to do is read 10 pages in a nonfiction book. So I said, okay, I'll read this book. And, and I, had, I, I had been struggling in the new age because I had become aware of the existence of evil through the reality of child sex trafficking, like Jeffrey Epstein kind of stuff. Like I knew about that. And whenever I would go on these new age retreats at a certain point, I was like, Hey, so yeah, love and light and everything. But like, what about this stuff? This like, Oh, we don't want to talk about that or glossing spiritual bypassing, ignore it. Like they just would not look at the existence of evil. Like, because in the, in the new age, like if you're in this classroom, like, is that child being sex trafficked? Is that the life lesson that they have to learn? That person who's doing the trafficking, is that their life lesson? Can you look can you look that child in the eye and say, you chose to incarnate so that you could experience this lesson? Like, can you say that to somebody? Like really, they, and they still struggle with it. So I couldn't get anyone to give me a straight answer on it. So I was still stuck with this question of evil. And um, so I picked up this book, uh, Simply Christian, which is still sitting on my shelves. And in this book, while I'm, you know, the world is starting to melt down around COVID. This is like February, early March, 2020, the world's starting to melt down around COVID. And I'm looking around like, this is bad. Cause I, I didn't take it. I, I knew it wasn't what it was cracked up to be early on because I just don't trust the media. And, <laughs> and um, I'm seeing all this stuff coming and I've, I've been around the world. I've had all these experiences. And then in the book, Simply Christian, there's an image that N.T. Wright says, he says, up on the cross, this, while Christ was on this cross, the cross, this giant tidal wave of evil came at him, and through his death and resurrection, he drove back the tidal wave of evil forever. Like it was going to crash over him, and his death and resurrection drove back this great wave of evil forever. Evil was defeated decisively on the cross at Calvary, and I got it right then. I was like, I get it. 
it was the first time anyone had ever spoken to me. This is what I say. And anyone had ever spoken to me about Christianity like I was an adult, right? To, to provide that vivid image because I was grappling with the question of evil. None of these other religious traditions I could look at gave me a good answer for it. But here was, here was Christ, who, Christ who I had met at Burning Man with truly loving and generous Christians who had shown me this whole other side of the faith. And here's Christ, here's, here's a religion finally acknowledging the existence of evil and having something decisive to say about it. Christ defeated, evil is real, Christ defeated it. Christ, and I was like, I'm in. And so then I went and I read um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And then I read the screw tape letters. And after all of my experiences traveling with psychedelics, like reading the screw tape letters, like, yeah, this is real, <laughs> you know, like this, there's a reality to that. And so then I went um, to go visit my friends in, uh, in Coeur d'Alene in September of 2020. I flew up there to visit them, and um, I asked them uh, somewhere along the line before I came to visit, someone had mentioned something about baptism, and that put the thought in my mind. And then when I got there, I just asked. They didn't expect me to ask, but I asked, like, hey, do you guys think that you would baptize me? And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely, sure. And they were really excited about it. And um, and the strangest thing was, uh, this was on, I was there through the weekend, it was, uh, again, Labor Day weekend. It's beautiful weekend, lovely, lovely weather. They took me to the Coeur d'Alene River. On the way out to the river, I was in the car, and I was feeling very nervous and kind of anxious. It was strange. I was like, what am I nervous about? Like, I could feel it in my body. It wasn't like I, my mind was racing. I could feel it in my body, almost like I was going to give a speech, like that feeling of like having to be up on stage. Where I'm like, I'm not going to give a speech, and that's not what I'm feeling anxious about. And so um, my friends took me to the river, and uh, then they baptized me. And... Yeah, I just went down to the water and I felt something shift inside me. Like right away. Take your time. I've never told anyone take, that before. Take your time. That man. Um, Just feel it right in the center of my chest. I still feel it. And uh, after after it was done, uh, well, the reason the reason why I'm crying is that now I know what that is. <laughs> I didn't know what that was at the time. Came up out of the water and um, I had to sit down on a log because I, I had felt like I had just been through something. Like I just had just got dunked in water. Like I haven't been through anything, but I had been through something. And uh, looking back almost two years later, it's been almost two years, you know, I can look back on that moment and know what it was that happened and what shifted in me. And I know now why I was, um, I know now why I was nervous. Because some part of me knew the significance of what I was doing, even if I didn't know. So yeah, that I've was my yeah. I've had experiences like that. Um, you know, I was raised as as a Christian um, in the Baptist church, but never never got baptized. <clears throat> you know, but we were constantly you know encouraged to walk the aisle and you know say the sinner's prayer and all those things. Um, 
right or wrong, I always felt like, you know, I know all this to be true. I'm, I, I'm not like, like I've grown up believing these things. I'm not having some kind of radical transition reframing of the world like you did mm. <clears throat> for me. And I so saw, I, I, I refused to get baptized and do all these, go through all these emotions because I was like, I've already accepted all that, you know? <clears throat> and then, but again, I was kind of a kid and I, I accepted my faith passively. I didn't, hadn't really grappled with it. And so as, as a young adult, after graduating high school and, and distancing myself from, you know, negative influences and distancing myself from drug abuse, I wanted, I wanted to have a real deep spiritual walk with Christ. And so the more time I spent digging into his word, reading commentaries, um, I felt like this is something I've been rejecting and denying all this time. I have to embrace it. You know, I have to, if I want to walk with Christ, I need to accept the sign of his covenant. Um, I, you know, I think you can have a relationship with Christ outside of baptism. I mean, the thief on the cross uh, was in paradise with Jesus that day, I believe. But um, there are things that fall outside of the Christian prescriptive that we receive from Christ and from the Bible. But those are, those are the anomalies. Those that's not, that's not the Christian path. And so I, I wanted to walk the Christian path. So I, at 19, decided to get baptized. Mm. And um, it felt like that. I felt like I'm nervous. I felt changed. I, I felt a combination of peace and fear mm -hmm. that was hard to really name or make sense of. And I think it was just, it was that decision to basically say, I'm going to turn this head thing about God into a heart thing about God. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know that I've shared that with anybody either, <laughs> but um, thank you. But your testimony brought it all back to me. Um, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to relay that to someone who hasn't experienced it, you know, yeah. um, similar to a, a psychedelic experience, whether you um, remember that positively or negatively, it's like you, our, our words fail yeah. to embody how awe, how the awe is manifests in, in, in your, in your heart when you experience something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, thank you for sharing that. It's a real, it's a real thing. And I have a lot of people who follow me on Instagram and, and uh, who I follow and people who I know who are like, I don't know, I would call them very anti-Christian, right? Um, not in any kind of like, necessarily like satanic way but they're just very opposed to christianity for all kinds of reasons my oh some relative you know some person they know or what they see in the media like all different all different reasons and they're all trying to criticize christianity from the outside and, and to be fair there are a lot of things to, to criticize in christians right mm -hmm. like 
I, I think a lot of Christians hold themselves up as as better than and in and, and secret they aren't, right? And so that, that hypocrisy is it's really galling to some people and it should be. But I think that aside, there are people that really disagree with the worldview. They're like, you know, they don't they don't understand the philosophy of it. And and what I struggle to explain to them is is that the regeneration of the heart is real. Like you can't see that from the outside. Like you can't you can't even read the Bible properly from the outside. Like getting baptized, making a commitment of faith, um, uh, becoming part of the covenant, repenting, doing all that, and and going through the regeneration of the heart and participating in that process and saying that sanctification process. Like that's what I'm. That's why I'm crying is because I can look back to that moment of baptism and feel in my body now right now in my heart the feeling of when that process started like I, f- I felt it like in the water i felt it and so now i can look back and understand what that was and two years later like i can actually read the bible in three dimensions like it's real to me it's alive to me and it's a thing where where non-believers they can't even read they can read the words and they can understand the sentences but they can't they can't see it and they can't understand it and that's the hard part to communicate it's like until you make a commitment to get inside the faith and participate and be part of it you, you can't understand it you can't even you can't even criticize it properly you think you can your you human sinful egotistical pride thinks you can right you can compare all different other belief and faith systems like well this one has this and you know this is contradictory to that it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter like get inside like come inside come get inside the van sit down go on the ride and you'll see it totally differently like how could i have been so blind and, you know, and, and that's why I can speak about the past, my past, the way that I, I have done is that, like, I'm not proud of any of it. But what I can say is that I'm, I kept my head on my, through all of it, like I was talking about drugs and all different kinds of stuff. We talked about various new age practices, like Kabbalah and tarot as a cult, like I've done all this stuff. And I can, I'm not proud of it. But what I can say is that I kept my head about me and I kept walking and I didn't quit. And I continued looking for answers because I was on a very sincere search. I wasn't looking for something to belong to. I wasn't looking for a club. I wasn't looking to, to be special. Like I wanted the freaking answer and, and I found it and I found it. And now I can say those aren't the answer, right? Um, Sounds and, like your friends in Coeur d'Alene were very patient with oh, you. Like, yeah. I, like I, I struggle with that. You know, sometimes, um, you meet a person and you want to, you want to compel them to follow Jesus, but I don't, something in me resists that a little bit. I'm more, I'm more inclined. And I don't think I'm not judging anyone's, uh, you know, practice of evangelism to be sure. Um, Because we come to God by the hearing of the word, you know, Mm. so, so we do need to, to actively evangelize. Now what that looks like varies to degrees. So I tend to I tend to lean towards that that method that they <laughs> embody there. So have have positive Christian influential interactions with people, but but just be there and be patient and give them time to come to make the circle and come back. Do you feel like that's how they held space for you? And oh yeah, yeah they they were they told me after. Um, they're like, they were praying for me all the time. They were so worried about me because, because he, I walked into their camp and I was very genuine. I was similar to how I am now, very genuine, very sincere, very curious, 
you know, very, very loving and, and very welcoming to them. And I didn't reject them for their beliefs. And I just wanted more. And then I disappeared from their sphere and their influence to head around the world to do all these le- legitimately pagan and uh, I don't know so much a cult, but you know what I mean? Kind of pagan fallen demonic practices. I'm like, Oh God, like not only that, like I was doing like objectively like dangerous stuff, like climbing mountains and sailing oceans. So like in addition to the, the spiritual adventure, there's physical adventures like, Oh, please Lord, bring him, bring him back to us because I hadn't, I hadn't made a, a, a if I can put myself in their shoes, they haven't said this, but because I hadn't made a, a, a profession of faith, they were probably worried about the state of my eternal soul. Like uh, mm-hmm. something could have happened and things couldn't, things could not have been good for me, like for eternity. Right. And they right. didn't want that for me. And that's why I give thanks to God that I was kept safe, you know, in my spiritual adventures, like what I mentioned with ayahuasca from all the demonic forces. And I was absolutely kept safe in my physical adventures. You know, I was given, this precious gift, precious gift to set out around the world to see for myself what's out there and what's what's in here, meaning pointing to myself, like what's in the inner world, what's in the world of spirit, what's, you know, and what's in the outer world, you know, of politics and economics to see in culture, to see it for myself. And there was no reason why I had to be brought back safe from that. No reason at all, you know, and not only that, I got brought back safe and I got introduced to Christ formally and I, I, and I was, baptized and made a profession of faith. And it's like, and when I realized that, um, I realized that for me, God gave me a, a, a profound gift of gave me everything I ever wanted. All I, and I've said that I've said this many times, all I ever wanted was to explore the outer world of through travel and the inner world of spirit. You know, even since I was a little kid, since I was 12 years old, like, like, oh, that's really interesting about the 10 commandments, right? All I ever want to do was explore. And I was given the gift of doing that. And then when I got back and then after I, after I got baptized or shortly, like right around the same time, um, I got called to my mission to do the Renaissance of men. And it was, there was very much the feeling of God saying, okay, I, I, I now you get to do something for me. And, um, and that's well, why that, that's what I do. I do. That leads to my next question. Uh, oh, cool. tell us about what you're doing now. That's, uh, I, cause I think it's, uh, I think you're doing something valuable. So I want everyone to know about it. Thank you. Um, so the Renaissance of men, so on the back of, while I was doing all these travels and all these spiritual practices, I was also exploring masculinity. So I went to a men's initiation, uh, called the new warrior training adventure, which is not a Christian, which is not a Christian organization. It may actually be woke now, but it was very formative for me. And then later I discovered like the manosphere and a lot of the red pill teachings and a lot of this whole masculinity movement. And through exploring this whole world. I was able to transform myself as a man and really learn what masculinity meant to me for me, because I believe that um, as my friend and mentor Glenn says, men are like trees, all trees share similar features, but no two trees are the same. And so I've been working to become my vision of masculinity, as I believe every man should and not try to be any other man's vision of masculinity. We're all made in the image of God as well. So through those through that all the readings that I did, videos that I've watched about men's movement and different men talking about different perspectives on masculinity, I was really able to get a really well-rounded perspective that really began 20 years ago with that class on Carl Jung and Lord of the Rings. And so when COVID happened, I started, I found my way into these online chat rooms on Telegram, and I started sharing my perspective uh, with men. And I found that they were listening to what I had to say and they valued it. I was like, oh, wow, okay. 
And then I went on to my, my travel blog and I wrote a post called uh, To Lose the World and Gain My Soul, which was that, and the point of the post was that I'm not going to use my social media to post black squares or whatever political message you say I should, because I was a travel photographer and I had some followers on Instagram. I'm, I will speak the truth no matter what it costs me. And I wrote that post and I'll share it with you. I wrote that post and it went viral and I realized that like, oh, wow, um, people really care what I have to say. And I wanted to work with men as a psychotherapist too, and pass on what I knew. And then I realized, well, I don't want to spend three to five, now COVID's happening. I don't want to spend three to five years in school to work, to serve men. I can just be a coach and start doing it now. So that's what I did. I started the Renaissance of Men initially as a podcast to talk about all the different perspectives on masculinity and do coaching and men's groups. And now about two, less than two years later, you know, I'm, I have a, I have a, podcast that I'm very proud of where we do big, long, in-depth interviews with various men and women related to subjects of masculinity, Christianity, sovereignty, Bitcoin, as we were talking about, um, decent social media following uh, on Twitter, Instagram, uh, clients for coaching and, and men's groups to really pass on some of what I've learned about masculinity, I would say spirituality, and like, here's all the things that you've learned and why they're wrong, and really take this opportunity to say masculinity and Christianity, like they they are, they're the same. And my top tweet of all time, I wrote something to the effect of, if you study masculinity for long enough, you will eventually encounter Christ and be forced to reckon with him. Meaning if you really pursue masculinity, you will land square in front of Christ and be, and be forced to say something about who he is and you can't avoid it. And what I'm really, uh, I feel very blessed to have found my way into this confluence of streams where the masculinity world that I kind of came from is now exploring Christianity. And then the Christian, the Christian world is now beginning to rediscover and rediscuss masculinity. And this new age world, the stream is also merging into Christianity. So I'm kind of standing at the confluence mm -hmm. of the major things of my life and getting the chance to kind of express them in this really powerful way. So I feel very fortunate and very blessed to be able to share some of these messages and, and make good on my very complex and checkered past for the purposes of really benefiting men and women too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I think a lot of our the struggles we have in modern society with sex and gender, masculinity, femininity, is because we have such narrow definitions of what those things are. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you're not big and tough, and you can, you know, wrestle a bear and throw a football, and uh, you know, make a million dollars a year, then you're not masculine. Yep. Um, masculinity takes many forms. Yep. Um, the bookish guy who's in the library and all he does is read. I mean, he, he can be exhibiting masculinity in his own way, mm -hmm. you know, and likewise with femininity. And so oftentimes I think when people don't maybe fit that narrow cultural definition of masculinity, and then either through words or just by the way people act, they treat them like they're not masculine or feminine. It causes them to start to question you know, maybe they belong to a different, you know, gender or something. And, and I'm, yes. I'm not judging any of that. I mean, that's a that's a big topic, but I think it's critical that we begin to understand me as a man, you as a man, masculinity in the framework of informed by by the man Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, and not not make it some kind of social cultural definition that is informed by passing whims of society. Right. Um, I'm glad that you said that because 
the masculinity conversation tends to get very low resolution and you get a lot of cults of personality with guys who are like uh, the only true answer of masculinity is my version be more like me mm-hmm. right and and um and that can have positive impacts for men that lack fathers to, whose image like human fathers to um to follow but it can become very negative because then guys get very defensive and say this is the only version of masculinity well it's like there's like you say there's the bookish guy over there there's the scholar there's the artist there's the warrior there's the builder there's the craftsman there's the poet we need all these different kinds of men and trying to collapse them down into one guy with giant muscles and a million dollars a year in the big house is absurdly reductionistic for the, the, the majesty and glory of the way that men are made. Again, men are like trees. Shout out to my, my friend and mentor, Glenn, for giving me that one. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that's really frustrating about being in this world of men is that a lot of guys they're not able to really see that like, hey, there are men out there that are nothing like you, that are just as manly as you are in different ways. But guys don't want to accept that. They, they really don't like that. That's one of the blessings and the beauty of Jesus Christ is that, and, and the Bible and the Christian faith is that you can look all throughout the Bible and you can see so many different kinds of men that are all different kinds of men that are all equally men. Like no one would ever say John the Baptist was less of a man than David, right? Mm-hmm two completely different kinds of men, warrior king versus like, you know, voice crying in the wilderness, you know, prophet. And you look at the apostles, right? And you look at the, and com- like compare the apostles, like Peter, fishermen, right? These are tough, tough men, many drinkers, gamblers. Like that's, you know, that's, that's the fisherman life today. And it was probably the fisherman life back then. Peter was not an educated man, right? But he was a manly dude. And look at Paul, like, you know, Paul was, Paul was a scholarly dude. Like, I think, what is it that Peter says? Like some of the things that Paul says are pretty heady, but we should just kind of go with him. You know what I mean? And you see all these different kinds of men. And you see, of course, the Judas character as well, right? You see all these different kinds of men in, in Christianity. And you're, and you can't say that any one kind of man is any less masculine than, than the other. And of course you have Christ at the, at the middle of it, you know, and you have, you have him, you know, being very tender and very loving and very devout. And then you have him being very angry with the money changers and you have him speaking sternly to the Pharisees and almost like cursing them, being like you a brood of vipers, something like that. And then you have him, like he's surrounded by his apostles, his best friends who even then don't get him. You know, it's like, why aren't you slow of heart, right? And this man who who is being as masculine as he can in this very loving and, and but also very forceful way. And he even then is misunderstood by his own best friends. And it's a such rich, complicated version. And that's why I'm so excited and so happy that Christianity is beginning to rediscover masculinity because more so than anyone in the secular world, it has so many examples to draw from and someone to be accountable to, to learn from. As Christian men, we are accountable to Christ. And so we are accountable for reconciling our differences between each other. And the saddest thing about the secular world of masculinity is that they have no one it's a power competition in many cases because there's no one telling them you guys got to learn to work it out because who above these powerful, rich, wealthy, successful men is going to tell them anything. Well, if you don't believe that there's a king of kings and a lord of lords, then it's just you. And it's just a it's just a it's just a base power struggle. But within Christianity, there's such a reason to reconcile our differences and and accountability to do so and so many images to pull from so that we can be stronger together as men and not be atomized, which is a lot of what the secular world talks about. Right. Yeah, it's easy to pad your ego 
So if you're the tough guy, you look at the bookish guy and you call him effeminate, you know, yep. and then the, the scholar looks at the tough guy and says, he's just a brutish animal. Yep. Instead of, instead of recognizing that we have different streaks and weaknesses and trying to integrate our whole self into what it means to be a man, we're just taking pot shots at the people who aren't like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's destructive. Uh, yes. It, it, it degenerates masculinity on, on the whole. Yes. Instead of raising men up to face the challenges and to make the godly, wholesome impact that they were destined and put here to do. Yes, I agree. And and two quick points about that. The the in in the Christian framework, say the athlete and the scholar, right? They have they have a third man above them, Christ, being like, you guys need to become brothers and learn from each other because the scholar can say, hey, athlete, like, let me show you this beautiful piece of poetry about athletics that will introduce you to the arts or this painting or philosophy. And then the athlete can be like, hey, you know, come and kick a ball around. Let's 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 get you fit and get you and get you more athletic because your mind will work better the more healthy you are. So those men have gifts to give each other. But in the in in the world, in the secular world of competition, like there's no reason to give your gifts. In fact, you're disincentivized from giving anything of yourself to another man because I got to get mine because if I give you mine, you got more than me and then I lose to you. Like in the Christian world, that's you're not you, you can't think that way. You're, you have no reason to think that way. So Christianity heals that divide between men. And the other thing that I'll say is that I think that divide between men is actually relatively historically new. I think it really started in the 1960s when um, you had the Vietnam War, when you had um, like the soldiers were sent off to Vietnam to be destroyed, and then the dra- draft dodging boys went to would, went to Woodstock to be, to take drugs and become more effeminate. And I see, and, and then also those boys who went to Woodstock and, and, and dodged the draft, they weren't wrong for doing it. Right? I want to make clear about that because Vietnam was an unjust war, and it was a it was a horrible catastrophe as well as for the for the for the soldiers as well. But those boys who went to Woodstock were also divided from their fathers, many of whom were veterans. Like I died for this country and now you're avoiding your responsibility. So, so what that did is it just tore men apart. Whereas the scholar and the athlete used to, used to respect each other more in the 1960s. I think they lost all respect for each other. And we live in the, we live in the, in the wreckage of that today. Um, and it's just a real sign of like how the new age in the 1960s you know, and, and a lot of the shifts that happened that decade uh, politically as well have just had a, a, a catastrophic impact on men that we're just beginning to reckon with. That's a great point, brother. I never, uh, never saw it through that lens. And that's why I'm an unashamed fanboy of your podcast, because uh, <laughs> you're, you. you're, you're, you're integrating, you know, you're, uh, you'll have someone speak on, you know, masculinity, fatherhood, you know, uh, leadership. And then you have, you know, then you'll have someone speak about um, the dangers and the destructive nature of pornography. And then you'll you'll share your love for poetry as well. So, you know, real quickly, uh, where does your love of poetry come from and what what how has it shaped you? What do you hope to do by sharing poetry with the listeners of your podcast? Thank you very much for asking. I really I really appreciate that uh, this question found its way in. Uh, So when I started my podcast, I wanted to follow Ryan Mickler's model from the order of man, which is he does three episodes a week, which is a pretty incredible turnover. He does an interview episode. He does an ask me anything episode and he does a, um, 
he does a Friday field notes where he just kind of shares his thoughts. So three different styles. So I was like, okay, I, I like Ryan Mickler stuff. So what, how can I imitate his success? But I don't want to copy him. And so I would like a second style of episode to go along with my interviews. And so I was like, well, what's really important to me? What is, what's not out there in the space? Art appreciation. Art appreciation isn't out there in the, in the masculinity space right. at all. And so I was like, well, maybe I can, maybe I can um, help men like, like art, art interpretation, like a painting or a sculpture or something. It's like, well, I was thinking about that. It's like, well, what do I know about what do I know about art? Like, I don't know anything about like, who am I to, you know, talk about the various themes of painting. And then if someone's listening to a podcast, they're not going to be like listening and examining the painting as I walk through, it's kind of an extra step. And so I had this book called the rag and bone shop of the heart. Cause I had read this book by this author, Michael Mead, and he was a co-author of this rag and, Bo- ra- uh, rag and bone shop of the heart. It's a collection of poetry. And I was like, well, what if I, for my art appreciation, I read and interpret a poem? I was like, that's, that's something I can do. And so I did my first one, The Man Watching by Rainer Maria Rilke. It was the first podcast I ever recorded. It was the second one I released, but it was the first one I recorded. And I found like, wow, this is actually really interesting because I know how to read. I know how to think and I can communicate that. And no one actually needs to look at anything outside themselves they can just listen to what i'm saying and then listen to me read the poem and the secret about poetry is that it's not meant to be read in your mind it's meant to be read out loud that as soon as you read a read a poem out loud it begins to open itself up more than if you were to just uh, read it on the page in your head Um, it's meant to be read out loud so once i started doing that i was like oh wow i'm getting so much out of this I'm learning so much and it's like there's this whole universe of poetry out there and I found it gave me a place to study history to unfold poetry to my own to my own benefit like I get a lot from the interpretations and then to be able to take them apart is a really interesting like artistic I don't want to call it a puzzle because it's not necessarily also mental it's a very emotional piece as well and to get to share perspectives on masculinity from men who aren't necessarily about you know the big muscles and the millions of dollars but they're not they're no less masculine men like you can look back at um george herbert you know george herbert is a very famous christian poet i think doug wilson posts a a george herbert quote a day on his twitter and i think that's all he does with twitter and george herbert had a really tough really rough life and ended up ended up being a priest and really struggled with faith and it's sort of really masculine grappling with god and so part of that is like I love doing art interpretation and as it's grown in me, I love doing art interpretation for men because I believe art has the ability to speak to our souls and, and, and really inform us about masculinity and also to show men that there's so much more to masculinity than just being tough. Beauty is an enormous part of masculinity, honor, nobility, and that these things don't live in contradiction to each other. And that, and, and also to be able to give men the gift of poetry because you can hear a poem and you can find it and you can print it out and you can put it in your pocket and you can carry it around. And those printed words will have as much meaning, you know, when they're, when they're gray and faded as, as the first time you read them versus if you were to print out a painting and it gets kind of rubbed off and you can't carry a dance with you and you can't carry a whole play with you or a or anything or a sculpture, you know, but you can carry a poem, which is a piece of beauty that you get to take with you forever and keep it in your heart. And to be able to give those gifts to men and to myself has been one of the great blessings of, of my podcast. It's been as much a, a gift to me as it, as it has been to everyone else, which is why I love doing it. I enjoy it. And I, di- I didn't really expect to. You know, when I started going through your archive there, I, 
I kind of skipped those. I was like, hmm. whatever poem, you know, and then I, I forced myself. I was like, no, you need to see what's going on here. See hmm. what he has to say. And I'll, I really appreciate the way you broke, you know, you break things down. You try to interpret it. Uh, you speak about the author's life, you know, so that hmm. that's very informative. I mean, when you read words on a page, that can make a certain impression on you. But when you understand the biographical life of the of the person who wrote that, that that can really inform you as to maybe what their influences were, um, you know, the things in their life that shaped them, that led them to write that. It makes it a much more potent than just reading a little poem out of a book. You know? mm-hmm. But you said you said put a poem in your pocket. That reminded me of a quote I read. I, I don't remember the author now. There's a famous biography of uh, President John Adams like 20, 25 years ago. Uh, back then, I was kind of going through biographies of founding fathers of the United States. And um, his son was leaving on a journey, one of his sons. And uh, he was kind of trying to prepare him for this journey, what to bring, what to leave behind. And he said something to the effect of, you'll never be alone with a poet in your pocket. And uh, hmm. he, he, he was saying, just keep a book of poetry in your pocket. That way, if you're, hmm. if you're bored, if you're at the, you know, the uh, whatever the equivalent of the bus stop was back then, uh, you know, waiting on, uh, pull out that book of poetry and read it. And I think those little small New Testaments, you know, with the Psalms are handy in that regard. I try to keep, mm-hmm. of course, now we have phones. So, you know, right. with, with the resources of the entire earth and somehow we end up still finding ourselves playing Candy Crush or something instead of, <laughs> instead of reading poetry when we could. Well, brother, I've kept you a little over time. I've totally really... Fine value the uh opportunity to have this discussion with you and i appreciate you being vulnerable sharing you know your past uh where that's leading you today and but i'd be i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you and i I feel like i know how you how you feel about these things but i think my listeners want to know um everyone's perspective so they can kind of come to their own understanding in regard to these things but real quickly what do you tell your fellow Christian about psychedelics? And I recognize that's a very difficult, maybe thing to sum up quickly, but people are, people are questioning, you know, they, they watch one YouTube video and they see this really dark trajectory that someone had. And then they hear maybe even one of my podcasts where someone shares how that made huge positive impact in their life. And they're, they're trying to weigh all this out. They don't really know what to believe about it. And I'm not asking for the final word on this. Mm. I'm, I just want Christians to talk about it. What, what can you speak to in that regard to the person who's questioning whether something like this could be valuable or not? When I went and thank you for asking when I, um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to have this conversation um, and, and answer it. When I went into the psychedelic world, I was looking for two things. I was looking for inner healing and transformation and answers about God, right. And ultimate reality. In the two years that I've been Christian, I have found more true inner healing and transformation through sanctification and regeneration without doing anything than I found in, I guess, I guess it was 20 years of new age stuff. I found what we might say like drops of something, right? from time to time, but for, but as I reflect back on it, the time, money, and energy invested 
to get those drops out, not to mention the risk that I was unaware of at the time. Not worth it. Not worth it. Sanctification and regeneration of the heart is real. It's real. And the peace that I've found in my heart, with myself, with my past, and with God cannot be found anywhere else because the new age psychedelics offer you no peace with God. They don't. And like there's no there's no redemption from sin. Right? There's there's reckoning with the past, reckoning with trauma and hurt and pain and and suppressed memory and suppressed memories and all that. But the ultimate point of all that is just it really just comes down to forgiveness. It comes down to forgiveness of other, forgiveness of self and uh, making meaning out of suffering, right? When you go into a traumatic memory of someone, say, for example, you suffered abuse or neglect, what you're going into, what you're really doing in that moment is you're going into the moment, you have to find forgiveness for the person who did it. You have to find forgiveness for yourself for all the pain that you've caused others in the process. And you have to make meaning out of the out of suffering itself, and which is ultimately a, a reckoning with God. All of those things can be had for free in Christianity by talking to your pastor. You don't got to go do dangerous esoteric practices and taking a chemical that you can get way more than you bargained for, way more than, than you bargained for. You can go have that with sincere work with your pastor and prayer, and you, can, and, and you don't have to risk running afoul of God and risking your eternal soul in the process, right? So that's the inner healing side, what I found through sanctification and regeneration of the heart a greater transformation than I ever found. If anything, I can say that the 20 years that I spent just set the stage for me to be able to experience something so much greater. I'm very, I'm very grateful that I was able, that I was sustained long enough to get to the point in my life where I was able to do that and protect it. So in, with regard to um, answers about God, those, again, the two reasons to explore psychedelics are because of inner healing and answers about God. The new age and psychedelics do not offer you any direct path to knowledge of God and his laws. The new age God and the God of psychedelics is a female God. It's a feminine God. It's a false God. You will not find any answers about God there. Um, actually, okay. I can't say that because God can show up wherever he wants, <laughs> right? So, so he may show up in the midst of a, of a bad trip and Christ may reach out and offer you his hand for redemption. And, and I know of, of, uh, I know of several instances where that's happened but that was being saved from a bad situation <laughs> that you shouldn't have been in in the first place, right? That was the, so you don't go, you don't go throw yourself into the trash heap and hope that God, I'm going to go find God by doing, no, don't do that. So, so the answers about God that I found go along with sanctification and regeneration of the heart and, and the truths that are found in the Bible and the truths that are found in the church fathers and the truths that are found in YouTube and pastors and messages and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, like read the Ransom Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, like such a profound vision of God and ultimate reality and not even talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, like the amount of truly beautiful information that's out there and not to mention scripture itself, which is breathed out by God and the number of pastors that can interpret it in such a moving way. The answers are right there and you don't have to go to a mushroom you don't have to go to a substance. You don't have to go to a chemical. And all these people that are telling you that they've had life transformation, you know, you get to hear this one way through a podcast, right? Or on a TV show or whatever, but you don't actually get to see any of the fruits of their life. You get to hear what they're saying. You don't actually get to ask them a question like, do you feel like you have peace with God? Have you repented from your sin? Do you recognize that you're a sinner at all? 
are you your own God? Are you self-creating reality, right? Or, or are you co-creating reality? Or are you in like, where did the universe come from? Was it created by a creator God? Like you don't get to ask them those questions. So whatever you're seeing from them on the surface about their life transformation, you don't actually get the chance to investigate it. And so to the Christian that is considering psychedelics, um, I say two things. What, what anyone, if we set aside curiosity, because as I say, curiosity kills the, co- the cat. And if listening to this, you're still curious, understand that psychedelics are, a, are, are like a fire. It's like lighting a match in a, in a room full of kindling. And maybe nothing will happen. Maybe you'll get some, maybe you'll get the light of the room illuminated for just a brief second, or the entire room will catch on fire, right? You have, and you have no control over any of it. You have no control over it. You're not in, in psychedelics, you are absolutely not in control. When you ingest a substance like acid or mushrooms or ecstasy or whatever, the chemical is going to physically do what it's going to physically do to you. And there's no off button. There's no, I want off the ride. It's going to work its way through your system and then you're going to come back and then that's going to be that. And again, so you can illuminate the room for just a second or you can light the whole thing on fire. So I urge you not to do it out of curiosity. Um, that would be that, that could go very wrong. And if you're still seeking inner healing and you're still seeking answers for God, answers about God, inner healing can be found through sanctification, regeneration of the heart, through prayer and, and through the Bible and through your pastor and becoming part of a good church and a good community of men. And if you still have questions, I urge you to reach out to me. You can email me at info at and we can talk about it because I encourage you not to walk down this path. Myself, Paul Reese and others, and um, there's another guy, I can't remember his name. He has a very compelling video on YouTube about his testimony taking psychedelics as a Christian. I'm here to warn you that that is not a path you should walk. That is not a path that you need to walk. And I encourage you not to walk that path. I got lucky to come back and be the man that I am. Very blessed. I thank you for sharing that perspective. The last thing I want to do here is give a one-sided perspective of uh, psychedelics. You know, I want, I want to hear from everyone. And I think if we build up enough content and we hear from people like yourself, people will be able to draw conclusions. And it worries me to only see so much positive press. Mm. You know, uh, I do think it's important to, you know, garner as much information as you can. But if uh, so many people are going to, for example, I'm happy to see Michael Pollan's, you know, uh, documentary on Netflix. Uh, I think that's going to open a lot of people to start discussing this, but there's a tendency uh, to which he, he even refers to. There's a certain naive exuberance that proponents of psychedelics, you know, express they're so excited that they will turn a blind eye to the people who've been harmed and mm-hmm. the people who are suffering because of traumatic experiences involving psychedelics, you know, not, you know, trauma from their normal conscious life, but things that have negatively impact them through the use of substances. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to do that. I want to provide a balanced perspective and I want to hear from more people like yourself. Um, because ultimately, even if a person does consider their psychedelic experience positive, what are you going to do with it? Like, what, mm-hmm. where does that lead you to do? Yeah. It's not a savior. No, it's not big enough for you to experience true growth, 
true relationship with the creator, um, you're only going to find that uh, where you sit in the community of believers in sanctification, you know, mm -hmm. uh, walking with Christ. And I don't want people to get distracted like that. Yeah. I think this is a discussion we need to have. Uh, I'm not interested in replacing my Christian faith with psychedelically informed Christ consciousness or something. No. Um, so I appreciate your perspective. Tell everyone real quickly, if they hadn't gathered it through our discussion, where can they find all of your work and access uh, services that you provide and things like that? Yeah, thank you. And, and I, I appreciate you opening up space for this discussion because I think it's very urgent. I think we're going to see a big collision between the new age and psychedelics excuse me, in Christianity in the very near future. I tweeted about it today. Um, so where to find more about me? So you can, uh, the central hub for where to find all the information about me is my link tree. So link tree slash Ren of Men, that's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, -E like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, Ren of Men. From there, you can find my podcast, which is available on Apple and Spotify and Google and, and, and every platform. You can also find my Twitter account, which is uh, at Ren of Men. My Instagram is also at Ren of Men, and I do slightly different content on both Instagram and Twitter. And you can go to renofmen.com slash newsletter and sign up for my newsletter. Or uh, if you'd like information about coaching and my men's groups, you can email me at info at renofmen.com and set up a free 30-minute consultation. And uh, we'll see if we can go from there. I have to tell my fellow Christians they need to head over there, check out the podcast, and not just the men in the audience. You've had a few women guests, and I think I think women can learn a lot about men by understanding, you know, kind of where we're coming from. They can help us help them by learning how to encourage us, motivate us, call us out when we're not standing up, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, this coming. I'm not sure when this podcast will be uh, is going to be released, but um, in uh, next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, uh, I'm having an interview with a woman named Annalise. She is on Instagram and uh, as feminine, not feminist, and Twitter, feminine, not is. So feminine, not feminist is her thing. And she's a, a, a early 20s, young, uh, traditional, you know, homemaker Christian girl who has over like 140,000 followers on Instagram and, and writes very openly about traditional living and, and uh, anti, you know, a Christian perspective on feminism, which is anti-feminism, I suppose you'd say, and, and how to live, how to live that life. And so to your point about, you know, women, one of the problems of the masculinity movement is there hasn't been space for women. And what I'm trying to do with the Renaissance is the Renaissance needs women. Um, and so I invite women guests on my podcast to talk about their perspectives on femininity and also masculinity. So we can help bring women, men and women back together with what I call the great reconciliation. I like that. I'd like to hear you flesh that out at another time. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Will, uh, thanks again for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think that uh, my listeners will as well. I think, uh, I think more than a few might come your way. So, and I hope they do. So. I hope so, Clint. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. God bless. And uh, we'll speak again soon. God bless. Thanks, Clint. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Will. And I strongly encourage you to have a listen to his podcast. And if you happen to be one of the countless Christian men who find yourself without purpose and direction, consider working with Will on a personal level. He truly has a heart for helping men navigate the challenges of modern life 
and finding and living their God-given purpose in the world. You can find more about working directly with Will at renofmen.com and find links to all of Will's work at linktree slash renofmen. And these links will be available in the show notes of this podcast. Remember, if you would like to reach out to me, I welcome your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And you can email me via contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. I would like to once again sincerely thank Will Spencer and you all for joining me today on the Psychedelic Christian Podcast as we help each other learn to navigate the interesting intersection of psychedelics and the Christian faith. And until our next episode, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 